Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Kia ora, I'm Mihingarangi Forbes, and this is Coast Watchers, a documentary about some little-known heroes of World War II, native wireless operators who were stationed around the Pacific as a first line of defence, protecting the shores of New Zealand from invasion by Japanese forces. Men you've quite probably never heard about before. Join me as I walk alongside Willie Cuthers in his quest to uncover and preserve the wartime stories of his grandfather and namesake, William Cuthers. It started out as a search for my grandfather and his place in our wartime past. I knew he had played an important role as a coast watcher. I knew he was part of the Anzac story, but that's all I knew. And the more I looked on the walls of memories and the official files, the more I came to realise that my grandfather's war story has been all but erased from history. And I want to know why. The Second World War was over by late 1945. But for me, the fight for my grandfather has really only just begun. My name is Willie Cuthers, and this is my story. Willie's grandfather, William Cuthers, was born in Rarotonga in 1925. Back then, the Cook Islands was still a colony of New Zealand, and it remained under New Zealand rule for the next 40 years. William became a storeman, and like many Pacific Islanders, relocated to New Zealand in search of work and opportunity, raising his family in South Auckland. Willie shows me photos of his namesake, William, smiling proudly in a crisp white shirt and tie, an RSA badge pinned to the lapel of his suit jacket. My grandfather for me, because I was a boy, so he was an old guy, and um, he was always that guy that was doing the talking at family functions. He was real smart. You know, he was a bit of a brains of, of the family. I've heard that, I've heard that been said about him. And to me, he was, he, he knew everything. He, you know, he had his humour as well, and he, he was a bit of a teaser, you know, like, and he'd tease me and, and whatnot. He spoke a few different languages as well. But I also remember that he'd always be sleeping on the, the chair after watching the midday news, and I'd be, you know, trying to open his eye. <laughs> but yeah, he, he was the, he was a, he was the old guy, old guy to me, but yeah, it's just my granddad. From the north across these peaceful waters comes a shadow, Japan. World War II newsreels. 
predicting imminent attack and dramatising scenes of invasion remind us of the very real threat New Zealand was under. At last, war really comes to New Zealand. Japan strikes without warning, west, east and south. I didn't learn much about this in school, about just how real and terrifying the threat of a Japanese invasion actually was. A single lucky hit was responsible for the disaster... And just how crucial the Pacific Islands were to the defence of Australia and New Zealand. Associate Professor of Pacific Studies, Damon Salisa, explains the significance of the Coast Watch's role. The Pacific War is on a scale that actually no war has ever taken place in before or since. It is so huge. And so the coast watching stations are a way to try and make sense of that and to allow a country like New Zealand, which has left itself very exposed, to actually organise its resources and mount at least what they hope would be a reasonable defence if it came to that. And with our soldiers ready for that enemy, are all our people watching the sea and sky as sentries watch for danger from all quarters. New Zealand is ready! The Coast Watcher Network spanned much of the Pacific. Its northernmost stations included what's now known as Kiribati, and it ranged as far south as the Auckland and Campbell Islands in the sub-Antarctic. In between, there were the Solomon Islands, right across to Pitcairn, and the island nations in between. It was that vast. With some 60 live stations involved, there was no way New Zealand could man them all with technicians and military personnel. So a small army of indigenous men were recruited to do the job on some of the most isolated atolls and outstations. It was lonely, dangerous work. Damon Salisa explains further. The network is incredibly important because it offers an ability for war planners to see activity. Now, sometimes people look and say, well, the war didn't go here or there. But no one knew that at the time, of course. You, you establish a network and then we discover it. So it's only by Japanese choices that some of these places don't become front lines. My granddad was like a father to me. He raised me and he served New Zealand just like me. I'm a police officer in Hamilton, working in the intelligence unit. And I'm also an academic researcher and writer. And I'm using all my skills to fill in the blanks about my grandfather's service and the Cook Islands' contribution to World War II. Willie starts with his own family. His granddad died 30 years ago. He's visiting his auntie Margaret, William Senior's daughter, to discover what she remembers. Dad always used to give us snippets of what, what he, he did during the war. I know that um, he spent some time as a radio operator in Rarotonga itself, but he also spent quite a bit of time in about 18 months in Mitiaro. And when he was there, he was a sole operator. He had to be pretty smart to be a radio operator, um, so he must have been pretty good at school. He was very, very intelligent, so much so that, you know, you have to be. If you are learning Morse, Morse code, you have to know the radio technology, you have to have, have your wits about you all the time in regards to what if something happens, you know, what's your plan of attack. So he was extremely intelligent and uh, I don't think we probably give him enough credit for it. 
Willie's granddad was just 16 when he was recruited as a coast watcher. And that wasn't unusual. New Zealand selected the best and brightest young men from each village to serve. They were taught how to gather intel and send it via Morse code to Defence Headquarters in Wellington. Damon Salisa explains that the assignments, often in remote and unfamiliar places, put these young men in very real danger. It's pretty clear that the Japanese are coming south. You're sitting there, you're working for New Zealand, you have no protection. I mean, the first place anyone was going to attack was the place with the radio. Young men, many no more than boys, out on their own, with no weapons, no protection, but so much responsibility. A signal from their station could be the only thing to prevent a full-blown invasion. And if that wasn't enough, they also had to fend for themselves. I think he was given a plot by the locals, so that, that's where he sustained himself and actually grew food and those sorts of things. So he obviously fished and those sorts of things to also supplement how he lived. You were put in places which were often new even to other Pacific people. So you were way up there in the tropics, you know, the weather was different. Often they were put in the bush, for instance, so you were exposed more to mosquitoes. Many people experienced health problems, skin infections, diseases from inadequate diets, and of course, you know, living that kind of life, lonely, boredom punctuated by extreme fear, you know, it's a very difficult life. Despite all the hardships, all the sacrifice, it turns out that my granddad and other Pacifica Coast Watchers weren't on equal footing with their Kiwi counterparts. They were given a different status, a lesser status. They were designated as native wireless operators, which meant very different treatment from New Zealanders who were doing the same job, but with a whole lot more support. Damon Salisa reminds us that these shocking inequalities had deep roots. It's very hard for many people today to imagine the way that these things worked because, you know, the New Zealand military, New Zealand colonial government was built on a racial division. So, you know, people who were native had a completely different status to everyone who was seen as white, especially up in the Pacific. So that meant they had different rights, different obligations, um, different access to opportunity. So native wireless operators were in a different hierarchy to, to the other wireless operators. So all of them would have been seen as inferior to everyone else. And even the Parangi wireless operators, you know, some of them were civilians, some of them were military. Um, it was a very mixed and confused picture that changed in the course of the war. So the native wireless operators were seen as a kind of second-class citizen at the same time as many of them had essentially the same skills. I'm curious to know more about the way New Zealand treated the native wireless operators. So I've come to Archives New Zealand in Wellington. In the documents, and there aren't many, I've come across a reference to a man called Enoe Teke, who was stationed at Nassau off Pukapuka. Willie tracks down two of his nieces in Mangere, Auckland, and Akitaura Taputu Joe explains their relationship with Enua Eteke. Papa Enua is our mother's brother, so Papa Enua is our uncle. What I remember about him, he's a nice, 
very mellow guy. Did you know that Papa Enua was a wireless operator during World War II? Not at all. No. We, we didn't know that he was involved in such a responsible position. It's great that we know now as a family, although he's passed on. This is such a common story. Servicemen returning from war and never talking about it. Enua's family had no idea how much he suffered. In the official documents, Willie discovers that Enua was finally relieved from duty after a crippling condition left him with holes in his feet. All of his teeth also had to be removed. He was still just a teenager. And yet, his family knew nothing about the sacrifices he made. Did Papa Enua ever mention anything like this about his job as a wireless operator? No, not that I know I think because we were children at that time, he wasn't really keen to talk about it to us. We wish we had known then, while he was still alive, we could have asked him more about it. Coast watching came at a heavy cost. Many of the native operators suffered ill health for the rest of their lives, while their Kiwi comrades went home to full health care and benefits. Damon Salisa recognises this as part of the broader story of enduring institutional inequality. Even if we think back to those enormous pay discrepancies, you know, where a Barangi wireless operator would be paid many times what a native wireless operator was from the same piece of work, and then we contemplate a New Zealand where we still see today this enormous pay gap between Pacific and Māori people and other people, you know, people can add two and two. You know, these are not separate things. They're, they're, there's a history of inequality and disadvantage that goes straight from there to the present. For me, it's not just the inequality of status and resource. It's also about the difference in how our war stories are actually recorded. There's been plenty written through the eyes of Pālangi New Zealanders, but that doesn't seem to be the case for my people from the Pacific. Willie's come to Invercargill to meet the Reverend Kimmy Henry. His family was part of one of the more remarkable acts of survival in the Pacific's World War II story. So that's your father down there? Yes. And he was a wireless operator during World War II? He was, yeah. yeah. You must have a few stories about him during the war? Yeah. My father, wireless operator, sent a message to America that there is uh, three Americans over here survived from a plane crash. The airmen were lost at sea before washing up on the island of Pukapuka. What I heard that they said when they saw the palm trees, they said this is the Japanese RNA. So they just lie down and die. It was then that a local found them and raised the alarm. And he was so scared, so he ran to my grandfather, the government house, and told him there's a ghost on the beach. They were brought into the house, and my grandmother was a nurse to look after them. Kimmy's father radioed for help, while his grandmother nursed the three survivors before they were picked up by a US warship. This incredible story has been the subject of a Hollywood film and a book, but there's no trace of it 
in the New Zealand records. Kimi's wife, Raylene Henry, says New Zealand must do better at remembering the Cook Islands war effort. You know, it's important, not just from our family's perspective, but for, you know, for all Cook Islanders to know what happened in the Second World War, you know, who took part in it, especially the radio operators. And his dad and his um, grandfather, they, they did a lot and it's not recorded anywhere. And that's the sad part about it. It will get lost. After this discussion, Willie reflected on the importance of having his grandfather and the other Pacific radio operators acknowledged. I've learned a lot um, from meeting with Kimi, a lot of information, and it, it enables me to sort of get a feel of what my, my granddad might have went through. You know, he talked about being alone and how the family would, would go stay with him because he was alone working 24-7. I think it's a proud, proud thing to be able to talk to a man like him and, and, and get that information. And hopefully, information like that can help us with what, you know, to get some sort of recognition for my granddad and the rest of them. Damon Salisa says that our war history is a central part of New Zealand's national identity. The memory of war is absolutely critical to New Zealanders, and in many ways, we see New Zealand being created in these distant places. And Participating in those things is seen as almost a manufacturing of New Zealand spirit. And so when people are excluded from that participation, there's almost an exclusion from the nation. The Samoan novelist Albert Went says, we are what we remember. And so when we choose not to remember people, we're denying people in a very fundamental way. And so we shouldn't be surprised that that has a real world impact on people, that it shapes today. It's not just about yesterday. Willie Cuthers and his family are experiencing this impact generations later, and there's now a sense of urgency to preserve these stories. I think Damon is onto something. New Zealand's failure to recognise people like Papa Anui Teke, Reverend Kimmy's family and my grandfather, is a hurt carried by all of us who descend from those brave men. If their stories aren't recorded, if their legacies aren't remembered soon, they'll be lost forever. It's something that worries me and my auntie. We can hear the hurt as Willie explains to his auntie Margaret his passionate drive to have his grandfather's contributions remembered. When I've been looking at this, because I'm looking at how granddad plays a part in, in who I am and how he plays a part in who our family, who our family are, and, and unearthing the story, like I, I already... I already love my granddad. <laughs> As it is, um, I don't need to need anything else. But when you're you're looking into someone you love, and history is written in a way that it puts them as lesser to a person that carried out the same job, it, it has that that effect on, on me, you know, that's why I push forward, because to correct that, because he's my granddad. I think he'd be proud of what you've accomplished. Anything we can do to make him shine, then we should do it. You know, 30 years, you can, you're still, you can still think of dad every day. 
Willie's written to the New Zealand Defence Force and the Prime Minister, asking for full recognition of the contribution the native wireless operators made to the New Zealand war effort. While I wait for an answer, I'm getting on with my research. I'm following up on another of the names I came across in the archives, Mr. P. Palmasitao. I'm meeting his daughter, Edwina. Do you know how he became a wireless operator? Well, he came to school in New Zealand and the end of their third term, Sir Maui Pome requested for the four Cook Island boys who were there to be sent down to Wellington to the Morse Code School to learn to be operators. Because on their return to the Cook Islands, they were going to be sent out to outer islands. Do you know how long your father spent at the Morse Code? The six school? months course. Six months? Mm. Okay. So when, when he came back to, to the islands, um, where was he posted? Well, he went back to Rarotonga and went to the wireless station there. And at a later date, he was sent to Mangaia to set up the um, wireless operating um, station there. All I knew was that uh, he was a wireless operator. He was in contact with, with New Zealand and that was it. He never spoke about it. Willie is discovering a reoccurring theme. Was it because they felt that we didn't want to know? That we weren't interested? Is that why the Coast Watchers, like my grandfather, never really spoke of it? Not to us, anyway. Could have been tied up in humility. I don't know. Either way, I wish they had spoken more about their experiences before they passed. Damon Salisa. I think our collective memory of the war has worked in a way to to make it visible or make it very difficult to see the contribution of non-white people. And in the Pacific War especially, those people have been deliberately omitted from many stories. So in the official history of New Zealand's war efforts, for one, the Pacific War is minimised. You know, there's literally, I think, just one volume on the Pacific War. But within that, the Coast Watcher story occupies almost nothing and then a single chapter in an additional book. Military historian Dr. Stephen Clark agrees that the native wireless operators have been largely disregarded in official records. Yeah, the so-called native wireless operators were doing the work that was required by the authorities where they couldn't put a New Zealand wireless operator there uh, in terms of spread too far. And, so, and the focus was always more about the New Zealand wireless operators. And so they did get overlooked. They did get overlooked in the record in terms of what you can find at uh, Archives New Zealand. The Coast Watchers, both Pacifica and Kiwi, were in place for one reason and one reason only, to provide military intelligence. It was about as dangerous as it gets. If they were caught by the Japanese, execution was all but guaranteed. One of the most shocking episodes of the Pacific War occurred on the island of Tarawa in Kiribati. In 1942, invading Japanese captured and ritually executed five civilians and 17 Kiwi Coast Watchers. Damon Salisa says all of the Coast Watchers were in danger. Through the progress of the war, it was discovered, and it was probably known to many leaders, that they had taken an enormous risk with these Coast Watchers' lives. 
because they had signed on to all sorts of instruments and agreements about war that said civilians would not conduct military activity. Now, what most of the Coast Watchers were in 1941 and 1942 was civilians conducting military activity. And the native wireless operators were at particular risk because they often got neither protection, not as a New Zealand civilian and not as a New Zealand military member. Willie has gone about as far as he can with research here in New Zealand. So we have the privilege of accompanying him to his other home, Rarotonga, as he tries to find out if the brave service of Coast Watchers is remembered there. For those of us from here, this coast, these ancestral mountains, it's hard to explain, but we all feel it. We all move at our own speed. Our present and our past are one. Those who went before us are a living part of us. We feel them. And I very much feel the weight of responsibility of making sure our wartime Cook Islands Defence Force and the Coast Watchers are properly acknowledged. I also want to know from my community here whether I have their full support in pursuing that. One man who is fighting for recognition is the president of the Cook Islands RSA. Willie's keen to learn more about the skills training operators like his grandfather would have had. He visits Henry Witchman at the RSA and together they examine the Wall of Honour. So that, that's my granduncle over there, that's Kamati? Yep. Yep. And my great-grandfather, he's down on this wall over here. Two of Willie's elders from World War I are on the wall, but not his grandfather, who served in World War II. One of the things I remember about my grandfather is that he could take apart and put together radios. How hard would it have been for them to keep their radios going and maintaining them? In this weather, it would have been almost a day-to-day -day, uh, process. One of the things that they had to worry about was the, uh, the salt spray, uh, the moisture in the air. They had to make sure that everything was nice and dry. But you just had to know how to work it, and if it broke down, what are some of the things that you could do? So were these guys keeping watch of the ocean and the, the air as well? If, if they were alone, then they are looking at, they are doing both things. But they wouldn't come up until they had uh, radio skids. But then again, if they saw something that, uh, that was important, then they would have broken what was called radio silence, come up, um, come up with a code or something, sent the message that they, uh, that they had, and then closed down. How dangerous um, is it when they break radio silence? If a Morse operator went onto the air too long, they could use direction-finding equipment to sort of zero in on where this person uh, was and they could uh, shell them or send an aircraft over or even send a patrol to, the, uh, to that location. So Coast Watching is risky business across the board? Very risky. Very risky business. For the native wireless operators like my grandfather, English wasn't their first language. They would often use their native tongue to help disguise their radio messages. Suddenly, indigenous languages had become useful to the New Zealand administration. How valuable for our operators was it for them to have their, their, their mother tongue, their indigenous language? 
I'd say it was very important to have um, them sort of transmit in their mother tongue. Firstly, they could get the message across a lot quicker. And if they wanted to send a message in Cook Island Maori, the operator at the other end would understand what it is. The base operator would understand what was going on. He would translate it into English, pass it on to the New Zealand operators that were in the base camp. William Cuthers, Willie's granddad, was stationed as a 16-year-old on the tiny atoll of Mitiaro in late 1941. His job was to scan the horizon for Japanese warships and planes and report back to New Zealand. Fear was a constant companion. All day, every day, news was filtering in of a brutal Japanese invasion. Isolation, boredom, ill health, hunger. This was the life of the native coast watcher. At least 40 young men were given this responsibility in the Cook Islands alone, along with hundreds of other indigenous men throughout the Pacific. Damon Salisa. They were all young, so they had to have all sorts of skills which were unusual amongst people of the Pacific at the time, because throughout the Pacific there was very limited access to higher education, meaning high school. They would have had to have access to educational opportunities that were rare and were deliberately designed to be rare by colonial governments. That deliberate discrimination, I'm discovering it wasn't just over educational opportunities. It was also about pay rates. Official records show the native operators were paid only a fraction of their Kiwi counterparts. But these so-called assistants weren't assistants at all. They're often sole operators in some of the most trying and isolated stations in the network. Damon Salisa explains that the consequences of this discrimination endured far beyond the end of war. They didn't get paid the same, they didn't have the same rights. When they went back to their hometowns, they were not entitled to the same things as European soldiers were. And after the war, the same thing continues. So if you acknowledge that the contribution of native wireless operators was the same, which it very clearly was, then you would have to pay them retirement benefits. You would have had to have given them medals. You would have had to have done all the things that were done for people who did the same task, but just happened to be Europeans. Being here on the lagoon in Arurangi, I can't help but think about New Zealand's relationship with the Pacific. My people are proud of the contribution they made to defending New Zealand. But how many Kiwis are even aware of it? It's always made the Anzac story very difficult for me. As Willie reconnects with his land, his ocean and his whanau, the deep hurt of these injustices resurfaces. I've always resented Anzac, if I'm being honest, because wasn't wasn't part of Anzac. I don't care about me, but I think it's just important <clears throat> if, if I can step us into Anzac, then my kids, because they're young, so you know, it's their Anzac, because I don't think it'll ever be my Anzac. Nah, you know, because you know, I'm old now, but they're young, so it's something that they, they've, they've been around with, with what's, what's happening now. But for me, nah, time's passed. Damon Salisa understands the emotional impact. 
So when people are confronted with a history that seems to be deliberately not acknowledging and including their ancestors, their ngafa, their whakapapa, then of course you get these very powerful responses. We would see exactly the same in, in Pākehā people if they felt history's treated them in this way. Historian Stephen Clark agrees. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. When you see that your family's service has not been recognised on this day of national commemoration, it, it does leave you with a sense, I'm sure, of a sense of emptiness, of, of not being a part of the New Zealand family of remembrance. Next, Willie visits his auntie and cousin to learn more about another family member who was also a native wireless operator, Peter Maurangi. This is Peter's granddaughter, Doreen Boggs. It makes me feel proud of him and, and everybody else that was involved in it, uh, knowing that uh, they were part of protecting us, you know. If there was something happened those days, they would have been there to do the best they could to protect us. It's such a uh, small uh, resources that we have on the island. During World War II, Willie's auntie Tutai Ngapoko was a young girl. What are your memories of um, World War II? No one explains it to us. It's a war going on. Maybe we were too young those days. How old were you at that time? Five, six years old. Were you aware that your father was a coast watcher? Yes. And uh, sometimes I learned this from their meeting at night oh, yeah. in our house. Dad is going up the hill to work. During the war years, it was up to the families of the native operators hidden high in the hills to feed them. There was little support from the New Zealand defence. Whole communities were involved in the war effort. My mother prepared the food, like fish, fried fish. She wrapped it into her leaves and tied on, tied around. Sometimes he used to put it on me so I don't drop it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was up to young girls like Tutai to deliver the food to the men stationed high above in secret hideouts where the radios were set up. The operators would make their way down to the base of the track to collect their supplies. I meet him down the bottom of the hill and then I'll pass it on to him. It's sad actually because we wish that we had learned a lot more about it mm. as we were growing up and as it was part of our education and it's not. These discussions strengthen Willie's resolve to keep this history alive. From that conversation I just had, I learned that sharing the stories now of what I've found, that it's like sort of opened up um, all this, all these new emotions, all these new feelings that they're having with finding out that their dad was actually doing something, in the, or something different and something that was actually related to the war. When Dorian brought up the, the fact that they've missed a big part of their history, that does strike a nerve with me because I understand how all these stories that are ours, they contribute to who we are. Cook Island RSA President Henry Witchman shares his observations. There is a lot written about the Coast Watchers. Uh, the problem there is that you've got a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. But, you know, if you go back through the years, um, you know, back to the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, the um, people were more focused on the soldiers that, that went to Europe, 
and then as time goes by, that gap starts to widen, and it's just widen and widen until sort of people look at their own back, uh, back doorstep and they go, how come our story hasn't been told? Living on a small island, word travels fast, and Willie's visit has piqued interest among some of the locals, including the senior paramount chief of the Puai Kuravaka district, Tenomana Tokerau Ariki. She's invited Willie to Aumaru, her historic residence. My father is Louis Dean, and uh, he was one of the policemen in the village during those days. And he was born 1903, and he died 1983. And it was based on Raimaru, to watch all these enemies coming to our island. What was, what was it like um, uh, when you were younger? What was it like when it was World War II? What was the feeling around the island? Everyone's scared, you know, because when they hear a plane coming, they thought it's, uh, you know, a war coming. Talking to Tinomana Tokerau Ariki, it's hard to imagine what it must have been like for the generations who lived through those times. The stress, the fear, the uncertainty. And it must have been even harder for the Coast Watchers, on whose young shoulders the responsibility fell to protect their people. Really stressful, because the stakes couldn't have been higher. By the time that the first Coast Watchers go up into the northern Pacific, it's clear that the world is at war. And while the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor hasn't happened, already there are German ships active in the Pacific. So being a, a wireless operator there, you knew that there's enormous risk there. You know, that if one of those German warships had come in 1939 or 1940, I mean, you were very vulnerable. And so it would have taken courage, as well as a real commitment to the cause. More and more families are keen to share treasured wartime stories of their forebears. So Willie's whānau are hosting a gathering at the local rugby club in his village of Puaikura. It's special because for many, it's the first time they've shared their stories in public. My father, he was one of the um, home guard on the island, but he was located in Avarua. Tino Mana Tokirau Ariki, the paramount chief, is also here. Finally, nervous and unaccustomed to taking centre stage, it's time for Willie to address the gathering. It's a real privilege to speak here because my granddad's buried up there. It's a, it's a special place. So when going through this journey where I've been looking into my grandfather, and then you see that he carried out this role during World War II. And, and a lot of European men, they carried out their role for New Zealand as well. But only the European men were, were recognised for their service. So I was constructing this, this argument and trying my best to, 
to get recognition for us like um not not in terms of of medals or, or anything like that what i what i wanted is for them to say they did it you know our men did it just like the other men did just like the new zealand men did so there was no difference that's that's what i want you know and that's where i was about going for gold but not just for my granddad for everyone for Pera Maurangi, for Tutai Pirangi, for Papiia Witchman, for Granddad. Yeah. Family's family. That's why it's important. And tough journey because it's really hard to, 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 to convince people when something's not in those history books to say, look, um, our guys did this, and they're, they're, but it doesn't say that in the book. But it depends on who wrote the book. I didn't write it, someone else wrote it. So now I'm trying to change the book. That's why I'm looking for the recognition so we can change the book so we can have our own story about what our people did in that time. I always said that if you, if you do something for your, for your granddad, you can't lose, you know, you win. So, so I was like, even if I'm gonna get shot down, I'm still gonna win. Because I'm doing it for them. If you do it for them, we're all in the right space. Yeah? Damon Salisa. Telling the story is really the first step to changing people's memories and horizons around that. And so even if we don't get to the place where those moments of redress happen, actually the moment where people recognise these histories and value them can happen independently. And I think there we'll see success. I mean, most New Zealanders will look at this and say, no, they did the same thing. They're a part of our story too. And I think that in itself will be not just the first step, but a critical step by sort of opening the door and changing our own memories, which essentially means changing something about ourselves. In 2019, I decided to rattle the cage. I contacted the Ministry of Heritage, the Minister of Defence, and even the Prime Minister. I asked the Ministry of Heritage if Coast Watchers like my granddad were eligible for medals. They responded, saying... It's clear from the records that assistant radio operators were not attested members, e.g. soldiers, of the armed forces. They were civilian employees. This means they cannot be awarded any medals. I was really disappointed because I could see they were still viewing their service through a colonial lens. Willie also heard back from the Defence Minister, the Honourable Ron Mark, who states he has the utmost respect for the Cook Island men and women who served, and that he's lodged an inquiry with the New Zealand Defence Force, whether it's appropriate for the likes of William Cuthers to be retrospectively attested to the armed services. Historian Dr Stephen Clark explains there is a precedent for this. So the New Zealand Post and Telegraph operators, after the, the 17 were executed on Tawa in October 1942, the rest of the uh, New Zealand operators were retrospectively attested into the New Zealand Army, including those that were executed. Now, that's interesting because, obviously, they couldn't actually sign their attestation papers, but they became part of the New Zealand Army because there was the fear that uh, as civilians doing military actions in terms of intelligence, that their other coast watchers would be uh, executed if the Japanese landed on other atolls, which raises the point 
then why were the native uh, assistants not also attested into the New Zealand Army? Because the same would have happened to them. Willie also gets a reply from the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, who says she supports the NZDF investigation and that she's been assured it will be given high priority, though legal advice could take some time. On this journey, Willie has met some of the descendants of the Coast Watchers. He wonders how they feel about the prospect of formal recognition for their loved ones. I think we, we are proud that uh, our one of our family, we were involved in those jobs in those days to represent the Cook Island, you know, and uh, I think it's a great thing to know now so we can acknowledge that, you know, tell our children, I'm really proud, I'm really proud, yes. Yeah, they should be all recognised, eh? People now are just beginning to realise how great they are, and it's never been acknowledged by outsiders. It's about time. It's about time because we know a lot of our men here that have done a lot. Are you, are you happy that stories like this are coming out now? I one, one thing that is, is really important, I think, for Dad's history as well as Cook Island history is that people need to recognise what these guys did. How could New Zealand do more to acknowledge our contribution? Well, it's up to New Zealand to look at those people. They, they went there under the uh, New Zealand government. And I think it's about New Zealand to look at those people yeah. today. For Willie, it's been a struggle to get this far. The bureaucracy, the lack of formal records, and there have been times he wanted to give up. But it's in faith he's found the strength to push on. In Rarotongan families, there's always the foundation of church. I'm no different. You know, I was always taught where things aren't right to, to try and make them right um, because it's, it's the right thing to do. And that respect, you live by that, you'll be all right. Now, it's a question of whether New Zealand will keep faith with the Cook Islands. Whether New Zealand, after 75 years, will put history right and at last dignify the service of the native wireless operators. Dr Stephen Clark certainly hopes so. It's always time to put history right. Telling the stories, recognising the families, and this is where, you know, government can do something 75 years ago. It's 75 years later this year is the end of the war in the Pacific, Second World War. And that provides a, a great opportunity to recognise the families of this contribution from the, the native operators and, and, as Coast Watchers. A sentiment shared by Damon Salesa. Well, I think most New Zealanders know what the right thing is, which is to treat the, the contribution of the native wireless operators with the respect and value that it clearly had. And that would mean pensions and, and the kind of honours that many wireless operators got. And that partly is going to be hard because it's going to mean we have to acknowledge New Zealand's difficult history of colonialism, the inequality with which they were treated at the time, and in fact, ever since. When I started out on this journey to discover my grandfather's story, 
and the story of the native Coast Watchers, there were lots of things I didn't know. But there was also a lot that I did know about him and the island nation that he descends from. Cook Islanders are proud people. They're resilient, resourceful, and generous. And while many of our stories have been consigned to the past, forgotten relics of another time, I'm also reminded that these people, my people, were asked to put their lives on the line for a war that was not of their making. And they did so without question. Before leaving Rarotonga to return to New Zealand, Willie and his eldest son, Kele, lay a Cook Islands flag on his grandfather's grave. My granddad a humble guy, and it didn't seek the limelight. So I'd say that <laughs> part of me probably be thinking, what's, what's, this, what's this kid done? But I know deep down, he'll be proud. You know, I carry his name. I'm determined to put things right for him and the other native wireless operators. But as I've discovered, it's not just about my grandfather and restoring his mana. This journey is also about us, his descendants, establishing our place as New Zealanders, our place in the Anzac story, our struggle to be properly acknowledged in modern-day Aotearoa. I dedicate this story to my grandfather, William Cuthers, and all of the comrades who served alongside him. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them, always. This was a podcast from Aotearoa Media Collective. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.